There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Table Church Podcast. Thought we might start our day off with a little Mr. Rogers, because what could possibly be better than that? Uh, Megan, we were just debating. Okay, hold on. I feel like we need to clarify that you didn't like take the effort to go to the internet and find that <laughs> clip and play it. No, I didn't. It's, it's a plastic Mr. Rogers that sits on my desk that someone gave me for my birthday. Yeah. And it has a push button where it plays a different quote. You've made this day a special day by just your being you. Pretty, pretty magical. Yeah. This should be our Taco the Bell. <laughs> For those who listen to the Holy Post podcast, uh, <laughs> they have a bell that they ring sometimes whenever there's like a product placement. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll just start doing this. Yeah. It's it, pretty it's addictive. Probably I mean, not going to happen. Yeah. We're anyway. Not. So when we have a question. the button on the trolley, Mr. Rogers talks to you. Thank you. Two of the best words we can ever learn. All right. <laughs> um. We were just talking about something we're going to throw out to podcast land, see if you know the answer. Uh, does the Gmail auto responses, does it tailor to your voice, your mm-hmm. individual voice? Like your writing style voice. Yeah. You know how like when you're going to write an email or like respond to someone in Gmail, it gives you some suggested responses that you can just click on. Mm-hmm. Uh, are those tailored to you as a user or does everyone get the same set of stock responses Mm -hmm. like does the algorithm just see the general conversation and suggest things based on that or does it slowly over time get smarter and learn how you would respond our theory is that it does get smarter because my responses are usually sounds good (laughs) and i say that a lot Mm -hmm. and megan never says that and never gets sounds good Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I always get like, thanks so much, or this is perfect, thanks. Okay. I might get those too. I don't know. If someone knows the answer, let us know. I'll bet you it's a simple Google search away. We didn't even think of that. This is better. (laughs) I agree. All right. Well, we're continuing our our journey through Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible, Making Sense of the Anti-Women, Anti-Science, Pro-Violence, Pro-Slavery, and Other Crazy-Sounding Parts of, uh, of Scripture. And we are in part three today. It's called Boys Club Christianity. And actually, before we get to that, can I just voice my excitement that we get another Supreme Court justice hearing? Mm-hmm. Um, I love Supreme Court justice hearings. The Be- hearings themselves are getting a new justice. Just the hearings. Okay. <laughs> Not like Brett Kavanaugh's hearing. That was like a total mess and stuff. That was rough. I just like stuff where it's like we're debating interpretive philosophy, you know, how to interpret texts. and I mean... It's a, it's a lot about hermeneutics, really, mm-hmm. which also this book is. And so I just thought I'd sprinkle that in there. I find it a fascinating discussion. Because know? judges are people, so they can't entirely accomplish this, but their goal is to be kind of outside of what's happening. Yeah, and I mean, depending on their interpretive philosophy, if mm-hmm. you're like, a, what do they call it, an originalist or a living constitutionalist, mm-hmm. like that that flavors kind of your understanding of how we interpret a text like the constitution mm-hmm. uh which i think also has a lot of um implication for other things like how we interpret the bible and mm-hmm. stuff so like does it just mean what they meant for it to say then and then that's it and then mm-hmm. we just keep, or is it like a living document yeah so, so i'm not making a comment a partisan comment on anything i'm just saying i enjoy watching those discussions and sometimes it's not very good, but sometimes there's some interesting things that go on. So, anyway, um, this section's oh, called. Wait, can I can I explain? I speaking of Supreme Court justices. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I just yesterday started reading a book by Tamiko Brown Nagin. Nagin. Yeah, N A G I N. It's called civil rights queen and it is a book about um one of the most fascinating historical figures in america that i've ever read anything about and i had no idea who she was until i started to read this book so it's about she has three names and i want to make sure that i get it right um (laughs) 
<laughs> so her first name's Constance, but it's Constance Baker Motley. That's right. Because I think when she was a kid, it was... Uh, I'm still in the part of the, her book where she's a child, so she doesn't have her married name. Okay. Yet. Um, but I started reading a lot about her. I listened to some things about her, reading this book. Um, she worked with Thurgood Marshall. She uh, has just had the... I mean, she's like as prolific an influence on... <laughs> <laughs> the world that we live in today and then hopefully the way that we're headed as like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like she's just incredibly influential. Um, she's a black woman, Thurgood Marshall. Um, she ran in circles with him. He tended to always absorb a lot of the mm-hmm. gravitas mm-hmm. for what was being accomplished. And she's kind of a figure that sort of fell through the cracks. A lot of people don't know who she was, but mm-hmm. brilliant book. So it's called civil rights queen. Now that we're talking about this. So you're saying that there was a highly brilliant woman who was in close proximity to a man whom we have now never heard of. Yes. But we should all have heard of her. Yes. Well, that ties in well with what we're about to talk about. It does. I didn't even plan that. (laughs) Because (laughs) it it seems as though for a long time, Christians have kind of assumed that many Christians, certainly not all Christians, have kind of assumed that, you know what, when it comes to like the real business of ministry, leadership, church, that's a man's job. Mm-hmm. And you know, women, they just kind of take a back seat. I mean, we don't usually say it like that. That's true. But we do act like But we that. shout it in our actions, mm-hmm. do we not? And um, so he, Dan Kimball's going to try to um, address that in the next three chapters of our book. And in fact, there are passages in the Bible that would rather it seems on the surface explicitly suggest that that's the way the church should look, that men are to lead, that women are to be silent or take a backseat role at the very least and that kind of thing. And so he goes through and just talks about all of these difficult passages. For example, Exodus 21 says, fathers have the ability to sell their daughters as property to men. Deuteronomy 22, if a woman is raped, she must marry her rapist. Um, there's many examples of polygamy where men have multiple wives and concubines, you know, and that definitely includes people that we would consider biblical heroes like David and Abraham and Solomon, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so the strangest thing is how like evangelicals have loved to really focus on like Song of Solomon and all these things. It's like great marriage advice okay. and all that, but we like gloss over the fact that. It was written by like the worst husband ever. A lot of wives. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's a good, it's to the point of like how this causes like a kerfuffle in people's lives is that we really, really focus on some things. And the point is that we're focusing on like the principles in something Mm -hmm. and we are accepting that the world was a different place then, but we don't explain all of that. So like you grow up doing all these like Bible studies and things like that, that are really focused on like this, this biblical marriage relationship. And Mm -hmm. then you're like, wait, what? Yeah. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. Um, We should, we should probably contextualize things, um, help people understand what's going on there. But uh, I just read some examples from the Old Testament. It doesn't stop in the Old Testament. Like there's still challenging, problematic verses when it comes to um, the role of women in the church and in marriage um, in the New Testament. For example, he posts a picture of a meme, uh, and I think that I don't think this is ironic. I think this guy holding this sign really believes I think this. I at the same one. Page yeah. 108. I was le- legitimately thinking is I'm not being funny right now. I didn't <laughs> know for sure if it was man or a woman because the person has really long hair. Yeah, it's it's, it's tough to see. It's probably a man. But but I can't. They're tell. holding a sign that says women should be one, quiet, two, keepers at home, parentheses, doing dishes, laundry, ironing, etc. Three, submissive to husbands. Four, silent in church. Five, caretakers of children. Six, modestly dressed. Read Bible for details. First Timothy 2, 1 Peter 3, Titus 2. Uh, yeah, I, I bet you there's people that literally, like that's just where they're at. Yeah. Well, I don't bet you. I know. <laughs> that's where they're at. Yeah. Um, and they're not afraid to say it. And then, you know, he'll get to the point of saying, you could also say women should be in seminary with men, you know see jesus Mm -hmm. and mary you know those types of things like uh it's funny 
Yeah. <laughs> those anyway, things. those things are in the Bible. So that it remains, um, I guess, our responsibility as Christians to address that uh, because a lot of that stuff sounds pretty awful. So let's start some of the Old Testament passages. For example, um, Deuteronomy 22 talks about a uh, if, if a man rapes a woman, he has to marry her. That sounds pretty barbaric, doesn't it? But he talks about how, um, you know, obviously the world is different now than it was then. But essentially, if a woman is raped in that culture, and not just ancient Jewish culture, but I think just about every ancient culture, um, that spells out long lasting implications for her, quote, value in society Mm -hmm. Um, for whatever reason. And very unfortunately, a woman who's lost her virginity before marriage was devalued. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to take that from a woman, then you're going to take responsibility for it is essentially what the law is saying to the men of Israel. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Does that help at all, Megan? (laughs) Does it help? I mean, I think that it does. First of all, I mean, we have like this really great example of God choosing to put his own self in this situation, you know, like of of public perception. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when Joseph and Mary are thrown into this scenario where no one's going to believe that, Mary is like righteous and untouched. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's like that right there. Just the idea that first of all, we can understand the situation. We have that picture of what that was like for them, but also, um, that's kind of brilliant that God deliberately came to us in a scenario, you know, that's repeated itself, uh, you know, for, and a millennia and so doing that. kind of infuses dignity yeah into that scenario like any bit. woman who's been in that situation mm-hmm. that you know god did not have to come to us in a state of scandal like that sure but yeah. he did um as far as like does it make it any better i mean i think it gets to the point uh that we will get to very soon that um nothing's really going to make anything better when we're talking about sin other than just like whole restoration so like he talks in just a bit in in the chapter about going back to like the garden of eden Mm -hmm. how god made things how things are set up to be and how um what's the phrase that he uses he uses a phrase like um i'm gonna find it in the beginning there were no bible verses that sounded (laughs) anti-women so just that like it did not start out with this problem you know like Mm -hmm. in the beginning there are no issues with like uh, are women and men equal mm-hmm. uh, in value or role those types of things, um, and then sin enters the picture. And now we've mentioned this in past episodes on this book. Now that we have sin, we're figuring out how to live in a world where sin exists. So nothing's right. a perfect solution. So. Um yeah, so when a rapist has to marry the woman that he rapes, obviously that sounds barbaric for us today, but it goes back to the question that I posed in the last episode, two episodes of what direction is it moving us? And what it's doing is it's um, ensuring that a woman who has been raped is going to be taken care of because mm-hmm. she's now part of a household. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I suppose that for some people that's not like that's not going to cut it like they're not going to be satisfied with that response and I don't think they should be either and that's mm-hmm. not where the Bible leaves it like we're going to get somewhere else eventually you know but it's the the, the question of uh, what direction is it moving and mm-hmm. do we see that movement continue throughout the scriptures but circling back to what you said yeah you, we should have started at the beginning um, I dove into Deuteronomy we should have started in Genesis well we're you know you're going logically through the chapter I just wanted sense. to tackle some of the hard stuff you know. But we should frame it by under, helping people know, like when God created men, man and woman in the garden, um, there's some language there that we should pay attention to. And he talks, I think, about John Walton, who we often understand that Eve was formed out of Adam's rib. Um, but the the Hebrew word... John, John Walton wasn't, but Adam. Right, Adam. And then... Eve was Eve. formed out of Adam's <laughs> rib, not John Walton's rib. Is that what you... Yeah. And... and um, <laughs> <laughs> and the Hebrew word for rib, he makes a pretty strong argument, I think, that 
Yep, not Adam. <laughs> that rib there, the word, the Hebrew word, is actually the word for side. Mm-hmm. It's like the same word you'd use for like a, a side of beef, you mm-hmm. know, or something like, like that. Standing next to each other. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's like it's like half of Adam. Mm-hmm. Like Adam was halved, and then God sets them across from each other, opposite each other, standing as equals in the garden, not opposing one another. <laughs> right, and so yes, and then talks about Eve being his his helper is often how it's translated in in the English, but the Hebrew word is ezer, uh, which means helper but we should also realize it's often ascribed to god god is mm-hmm. often described as our easer and so mm-hmm. like your ebenezer yes. that word mm-hmm. if you've ever heard that word like god brought you yeah and so if easer means like subordinate right servant or something like that that wouldn't make much sense mm-hmm. because god's not our subordinate right but he is our helper and so perhaps we can think about it in more of a Genesis one and two it mm-hmm. appear to be trying to show us that God created humans as royal co-equal rulers uh, over the creation that he made. Mm-hmm. And that if we are made in the image of God, then we are made to live in community just as the Trinity does. Uh, so we're made to live in community with God and with each other. So when God says it's not good for man to be alone, it's not because man needed an accountability partner or, you know, like someone to keep him from sinning or mm-hmm. someone to whatever. Because sin wasn't there yet. Like you, you're just made to have these counterpart relationships with people just because community is good. Yeah. Because that's how God lives. Yep. So we live with him like he does. And so... Uh, to look at what originally is set in place, it's not there like, it's not good for Adam to be alone because he's lonely. Like, it's not exactly that. <laughs> like, it's that it's just not complete he's, yet he's incomplete. until there's community. Yeah. And so um, when you know that, then when sin enters the picture and everything changes, you can know that whatever we're doing to manage life while sin exists, we're always wanting to move toward the direction of what we're originally made for. Mm-hmm. So so when you understand rib as more of like a, a, the idea of side, you see the symmetry that Genesis is trying to paint between Adam and Eve. And you can see how, you know, Adam was incomplete in the garden and you see that between their, in their relationship and their community, but also in like sexual difference and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. there's this symmetry, this fit that uh, the Bible's trying to show uh, between male and female. And I would say Genesis is some ancient cultures tried to establish or sanctify the inequality between men and women as some sort of a superiority, just like innately in a man, mm-hmm. right? They would try to find some sort of ontological or metaphysical superiority to by which they can demonstrate. We'll see men lead all over the place and that's the way it ought to be. Mm-hmm. Genesis does something different. It sees the inequality in the world. It doesn't try to explain it as something necessary. It doesn't try to defend it. It blames it on sin. Mm-hmm. It sees it as a problem. It sees it as a departure, as a, as a departure from the way things were supposed to be. Many other cultures don't do this. They're like they're trying to uh, find some sort of a, you know, irrefutable explanation for it in the way humans are made and designed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Genesis says no. It was a result of the fall. It wasn't how it was supposed to be. And that's a that's a crucial difference between the Bible and the worldview, I think, of probably many other places and cultures. So Yes. So whenever you hear people say like you can just see over and over again in history that men have this impulse to lead and women have this impulse to um either fight to try to take men's place or uh to just compliment them by being quiet and submissive to their leadership. Um all of that is like you know, you can just, you can say like, look throughout the entire world, there is this thing that Genesis describes perfectly Mm -hmm. (laughs) as this dynamic that is now going to play out in an imperfect world until it is fully made whole again, you know, until the end of time, quote, quote, Mm -hmm. that's, that's how it will be, that there will be this like power dynamic struggle uh, that isn't supposed to be there. It isn't because men were supposed to lead and now women are trying to take their place because of sin. That's not exactly it. So 
Anyway. The design was that men and women should be mutually flourishing together, leading together, complementing and completing each other, that kind of thing. Yes. So um, it's just good. I mean, I think it, it just helps to be alert, you know, have like that constant vigilance for things that you hear that might be settling for saying sin is the definition of how things are supposed to be. And we're working, you know, that the, the, the way that things are supposed to work are designed by sin and its effects more mm -hmm. than God's original intent for us. So just like in all things, being careful to see, like when we're starting to talk hermeneutics, when we're starting to figure out how to interpret what the Bible means for us in our life right now, to be aware of the times that we're maybe making an interpretation where we're relying more on how sin works than how God works mm. um, in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not just men and women, but it's everything. You know, like when we try to figure out like what to do about xyz in our life and we're looking to scripture to understand what to do if we're looking more at like how does sin function and how can we work with that um in our decision making then that can lead us down a really gross path sometimes yeah, yeah if patriarchy is a result of the fall it seems a little weird that christians would try to sanctify it mm -hmm. and yet that seems to be what happens sometimes um yeah. Anything else to say about Genesis? We so we kind of touched on you know one kind of troubling passage about from Deuteronomy twenty two, but there's there's mm -hmm. others like that um, where you know it it seems really difficult to swallow now, but actually in that time and place it would be it would be softening, it would be protecting women more than what they would have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the picture of like women needing to marry their rapist is a really, really good illustration. I'm sure that's why you used it, just because it seems so ludicrous. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if your family's forced to cast you out, you don't have anywhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> and you're either going to become a prostitute or die or be a slave mm -hmm. or marry this person. Yeah. Which, and by the way, he, he, I think, points out rightly that the law in Deuteronomy is not forcing the woman to marry him. It's forcing him to offer it, mm -hmm. <laughs> or essentially, you know, like it's yeah, like if to he him. wants to remain in good standing at all, mm -hmm. he's gonna have to take responsibility yeah. for what he had done. Yeah. Um, and then there's other things like people caught in adultery, like stoned to death. But if 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 um, if it happens like out in the field where the woman couldn't have been heard if she screamed, then only the man will be punished because presumably she may have tried to get out of it, but he didn't let her. Mm -hmm. You know, and um. So it's, it seems, it seems really barbaric. And yet you see here, you know, contextually speaking, comparatively speaking, like the law is trying to protect the presumed innocence of the woman. Mm -hmm. um, and so whose life was generally not that great compared to our standards in America today mm -hmm. in general. <laughs> so like all of it seems really rough. Um, but I mean, women's lives were really rough. They were. In a lot of ways, so. They were, and, and time and time again in the Old Testament, we see steps towards um, a goal that we would want to affirm in the end, which is uh, women being able to have a voice. And in fact, we see many women in the Old Testament that, that um, break the mold of patriarchy. And I don't know, maybe I should just ask you this, Megan. Who's your favorite Old Testament woman? My favorite Old Can you Testament pick a favorite? woman? Um. I mean, <laughs> I've never been asked this question before. I would say this is going to sound kind of weird. I think Jezebel. Um, no, <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, the whole story is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Like the world was really in a hinge point at that point. Um, if yeah. you are not familiar with the story in Second Kings, um, like God's people have been in a hot mess. Mm -hmm. Things are revitalizing. Um, Huldah plays a really, um, you know, important part in all of that. And we know very little, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, what, uh, oh, I, this, this Scott McKnight quote was what I was looking for. That's why I was speaking kind of disjointedly. Um, so it says King Josiah needed someone to tell them what the scriptures meant. So the high priest and the king's advisors turned to the prophet Huldah, who is a woman, meaning she was already in place as someone who was wise 
and mm-hmm. clearly was speaking um, to the people for the building up of, you know, the glory mm-hmm. of God and good of the people so she's already in that position and scott mcknight wrote this it's quoted in the book holda is not chosen because no men were available she is chosen because she is truly exceptional among the prophets as in the she's not the only one around you know and Mm -hmm. uh, they specifically go to her to say what does this mean (laughs) right so just to put it on to, to frame it all up nicely the king and his top officials need somebody to interpret the text and they could go to Jeremiah or Zephaniah or Nahum or Habakkuk. And I think Obadiah too, even though he's not listed here, Mm -hmm. but no, they go to a woman named Holda who is a prophetess Mm -hmm. and she gives them um, an accurate rendering of the significance of it. And so, that says a lot, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a very and meaningful. And she's verified. What she says happens. Mm-hmm. It's a very <laughs> meaningful uh, moment in the Old Testament. And so there's other women like Deborah. She's a judge. Mm-hmm. She oversees, She leads all of Israel um, rather well. She's arguably the best judge in all of Israel. I don't know how many judges there are, like 13 or 14 judges. Most of them are just like horrible. Uh, but <laughs> it, was not a, it wasn't our best time. No, it wasn't. But <laughs> Deborah gets the job done. And so... There's certainly examples in the Old Testament of women doing significant leadership and ministry work. You know, I happen to just, um, I'm reading, you know, I just read through the Bible and then start the beginning again. Mm-hmm. One of my chapters today was Proverbs 31. And I had been thinking, this is totally unrelated to this podcast. I was like, why don't people like encourage their sons to be more like the Proverbs 31 woman? <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, um, I say that kind of thing all the time where I'll be like uh, pointing out that like um, King David's good character qualities immediately it's inferred implied that they're going to transfer to all of us should seek after like those sure. qualities. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to the women in the Bible, they're like four women only. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's a great. That's a great observation. You know what I mean? I'll get up on stage. I'll preach a sermon about Jacob or David and the, presumably intending for everyone's everyone. Everyone's like, everyone's like, that's a quality. Everyone applies have. their, their qualities to their lives, including yeah. the women. Mm-hmm. So why or not? Paul or, mm-hmm. you know, Peter or yeah. Timothy or whatever. Yeah. Um, everybody's supposed to be like that. Mm-hmm. But when there's a woman, it's the story's about a woman, that's it's just for women. generally for women. Yeah, We don't like transfer that on to men and say, be more like that. And the Proverbs 31 chapter is a poignant example of that because, yeah, I've never heard anyone try to preach a sermon to the mm-hmm. general population that yeah. you should exemplify a Proverbs 31 woman. Yeah, um, it's for Mother's Day. Right. Or <laughs> I, I think that you could say like tea. sermons on Ruth and stuff like that have a more general application. But even then it's like, look what men do in a relationship and what women do. Like men yeah. are protectors. I'm, I'm just saying, and, I'm pretty yeah. sure that I've like heard teachings that would maybe qualify a little better mm-hmm. about other women in the yeah, Bible. Yeah, like being faithful, but, being whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the mm-hmm. Proverbs 31 example is really good because mm-hmm. yeah, are you going to get up there and tell the boys or the men to exemplify or embody what the Proverbs 31 woman is? Mm-hmm. If not, why not? Yeah, because there's nothing in there that only a woman can do. That you wouldn't want a man to do, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Even talks about like running a business well. And yeah, stuff. <laughs> like, you know, being a yeah. shrewd business owner, taking care of your family, mm-hmm. you know, all those types of things. I mean, why is why is that not just general, general <laughs> advice? There you go. Um, hey, anyway. Next sermon. Yeah. Outline. Um. Yeah, let's talk. Should we jump to the New Testament? Yes. I, think? Um, I feel like we've been talking a lot about women in ministry, but I don't know how much we've talked about this book. I guess you <laughs> did just read from we it. We did. Yeah. We. I mean, we're just like listing off the women that he talks about. It's true. Three, Obviously, three. this is something you and I have thought about a little bit. Yeah, a little more than other parts of the book. For yeah. Sure. And so we've got thoughts on it. Um, okay. Uh Let's, let's see here. Megan, what would you say um, is, in the, when we're talking about the New Testament, what is for you one of your favorite um, moments or passages exemplifying 
the just glorious equality of the kingdom of God. <laughs> if you were going to go to any passage, what would it be? I mean, there's the obvious one where kind of like I said, God intentionally incarnated himself into a situation where everyone thought, you know, Joseph and Mary were sinners, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> even though they weren't like that was unnecessary to mm-hmm. put them into that scenario so that he could be put in that scenario. Yeah, I love it. Um, but then also when he uh, comes back after being dead and he's resurrected again, he deliberately reveals himself to women who um, nobody would have trusted what they had to say. They thought they were just drunk or crazy or oh, man. hallucinating. Yeah, I, I think the the fact that Jesus appears to women first after his resurrection and that they go and tell the disciples it, like, I don't think we can, I don't think we can understand how much that speaks, mm-hmm. like what the significance of that is. And whether or not there was an, you know, men there at the same time, mm-hmm. like having these women see him be instructed to go tell everyone else about it. That's not refuted. Like that's, that's just mm-hmm. how, you know, the accounts go. And the idea that he would do that, which we can't really fully grasp it, but like women, we're not able to be taken seriously when it comes to like valid, you know, statements in court. They couldn't own anything. They couldn't, you know, all of this. So the fact that God was like, I'm going to make sure first (laughs) I show up for these women and then tell them to go tell people. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about like doing what, what we do with like, for example, men and women, if we're looking at, um, how the Bible illustrates how we navigate things while sin exists. And then we see Jesus showing us how to navigate things to slowly move ourselves back to where he started things. It would be that, you Mm -hmm. know, like uh, it's not going to fix everything in a moment, but he's saying now, like, don't just like manage yourselves with sin in the picture. This is how things get restored. Mm -hmm. Flipping that around. Yeah. So Jesus says to his disciples to be clever as serpents and innocent as doves. And I think we see that in the New Testament a little bit in the way that it uh, presents to us this equality, full equality between men and women. It doesn't always come out and just like like baldly say it, you know. Mm-hmm. What it does is it, it subverts the norms in ways that are easy for us to miss today, the significance of, but would have been literally shouting from the rooftops at the time. And I think this is one of those examples. Like you can't ignore that reality that the women were the first to hear and the first to tell it right Mm -hmm. they were the first to proclaim the resurrection of jesus i mean in my mind that means they were the first to preach the gospel Mm -hmm. and they did it to the male disciples that's just it's just dripping Mm -hmm. with significance and meaning and subversion and that kind of thing because that is what preaching the gospel is right if you go to seminary sometimes you might be given an assignment like write a 50 to 60 page document that just proves that one thing that preaching means you know uh identifying the savior of the world, the mm-hmm. kingdom of everything, you know, yeah, proclaiming the resurrection Jesus, of Christ, the and Lordship that he of Christ is here and available yeah. and, um, all things in him will be returned and made new. Yeah. That's preaching. And that's what Jesus tells these women to do. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's cool. I mean, other than that, <laughs> obviously like there's a lot of really good stories in the gospels that just illustrate how Jesus treated everyone who wasn't important, not just like women or children, but I mean, even out of men, there were only some specific men in society that were considered like, uh, you know, of relative importance. You Mm -hmm. know, you had to have an education, you had to be, you know, a certain kind of person in Jewish culture to be able to kind of be taken seriously, all of that. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, my, my other than the resurrection story, my probably favorite one is, um, Martha and Mary and mm-hmm. uh, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, like the most serious disciple in the room. <laughs> yeah, literally <laughs> taking the form of a disciple by sitting mm-hmm. at the master's feet. Which women never got to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, and just like putting herself up there and Jesus telling her that that's where she should be. That's a really big deal. And people just kind of always, it bothers me so much because people always infer that that means and this is where we talk about hermeneutics mattering um like how you look at something and how you start to try to understand what's happening um and then what that might mean so the idea that mary is like sitting at jesus's feet just like adoring him people generally tend to look at that as like 
look at her just loving him you know but what she's doing is like listening to every single thing he says sure like a very serious student she, she's sitting at his feet as a student not simply as a worshiper yeah right but as a student mm -hmm. which was considered the role of his male disciples she's taking the place of some guy who probably wanted to sit there <laughs> to be honest yeah and cool. would have thought he had a right to be there mm -hmm. and not her so that's really cool like that kind of stuff is really important um and it's not that like mary's mary's lazy martha works too much you know all of right. those types of things martha is just like representing us like a lot of times you know we see jesus do something and we're just shocked because we know how the world works and it's that picture of like are you adopting um strategies for getting through the day based on how the world works only or are you open to god knocking you upside the head and saying this is how the kingdom works mm -hmm. you know and it can happen right now in the world right you know so martha and mary has a really good story to illustrate that yeah i agree good. moving on yeah um, I, I want to answer my question too. Like what's my favorite? And I, I always go to Junia and Romans 16. I just think that that, that text is so crucial because number one, I just feel like it's kind of the nail in the coffin for any objection to the full unfettered, you know, ability of a woman to lead in the church at all levels. Um, in case you don't know, in Romans 16, six and seven, Paul writes, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. And then importantly, he says, they are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. And there has been a lot of consternation in the church over whether or not Junia, A, was actually a woman, or B, was actually an apostle even though the most straightforward reading of the text would sure suggest that both of those things were the case, um, to the point where for a long time, our English Bibles had her as a man. In fact, if you have a Bible that predates 1995, um, please go check it out, open it to Romans 16, seven. And I am almost certain that Junia will say Junius. There will be an S at the end of it because S is the sigma is the, the masculine ending in a, for a Greek noun. And um, it has to do with the way they accented the word and stuff like that. But at some point along the way, a scribe accented junia in such a way that it suggested the masculine ending and that made its way into our English translations for quite a while. It wasn't until around 1995 that you start seeing uh, more and more English Bibles actually correctly call her junia which is a feminine name. And the fact of the matter is, even if it was Junius, we still have a problem because we have never discovered an ancient inscription or writing with the name Junius. It just didn't, we, as far as mm -hmm. we know, that wasn't even a name. There was no men named Junius. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so even as perhaps somebody was trying to, to make her into a man, which the earliest manuscripts, none of them say Junius. That doesn't come along until much later that somebody mm -hmm. in, you know, uh, inflects the word in order to suggest it might possibly be a masculine word. It was on, it was much, much later, right? Hundreds of years later. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I now, think I, you have just like pricked a fear that everybody has about like, can your Bible be messed up? Mm -hmm. Like, can your Bible be messed with? Can so, you just like in, in think, one minute, can you like help uh, people? <laughs> the Bible is phenomenally well preserved. Like the, Dead Sea Scrolls that we discovered in Israel. Like they were largely Old Testament writings, a thousand years older than what had been the oldest writings up until that point. Mm -hmm. And we're like 99% the same. Like yeah. the, God has preserved his word in you know, like just phenomenally well over the centuries. Um, however, the Bible is still a translated document. It's a copied document. It's, you know, manuscripts are written by scribes and handed down. And then those manuscripts are copied by other scribes and handed down. Like that's how we get our text. And so we have to account for the human element at some level. Um, and this is one of those examples where unfortunately, you know what, I don't want to assume the worst, but I mean, it's possible that people were trying to bury this woman, like mm -hmm. turn her into a man. I think um, Scott McKnight uses that language. He does. Yeah. She got buried and resurrected mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Yeah. And and um if somebody's been monkeying with your Bible, then you should be upset about it. You know? Like, like it's okay to feel gross about that. It is gross. Yeah. Yeah. And 
especially if it was for motives of, oh, she couldn't be a woman. How can an apostle be a woman? It mm-hmm. must be Junius, you know, masculine ending. And on we go for centuries. And it was like a, it's a big deal because the whole point of being a scribe <laughs> is that you preserve exactly, mm-hmm. you know, what you see. And so to do that, and we don't have like, I don't think I've ever read anything that there's like a record of how it happened. Mm. Right? Oh, uh, there is. We have, um, I, I can't I can't tell you for sure, but there's a pretty in-depth study by a textual critic named Elton Epp. E-P-P. That's what I didn't read. EPP. Yep. It's going to be tough if you're not into the Greek stuff, but um, it is a definitive study in my opinion, which isn't really. So do we have really a point much, where we can see where like there was deliberation about this? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. And he can go back and show that it's definitively supposed to be Junia. And traces kind of when in the manuscripts things started to change and stuff like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. I could look into that like, and come back Did next they time. all get in on Google Meet and say, <laughs> look, this seems to be wrong? Yeah. I mean, we can we can do we can construe it more positively and because it really it wasn't like they added an S. It was a matter of a accent. Because when it's uh, you know, different words have different declensions and stuff like that and that changes the endings of different words. And depending on what kind of accent there is, it can, de- anyway, it can suggest what, uh, what gender the word is. Um, and so it's a very subtle mistake. And so it's hard to say, and I don't want to go so far as to say like some evil scribe was trying to bury women, but the mistake did not get corrected for a very long time. Even though we had the original man or mm-hmm. the oldest manuscripts for a long time. There wasn't like a big push to yeah. fix that. And I think that it really got propagated by Martin Luther when he translated the Bible into German and Junia in German was still a male name. And that's Mm -hmm. really when the Bible first became widely read by the common folk. And that was kind of where the thing spread and it made it way into our, into our uh, English translations as well. Um, But anyway, I've been talking about this for a while. So Junia is definitely a woman. We know that to be the case. There's, I think in recent years, been one or two attempts by scholars to suggest that maybe she was a man. Um, but those have been roundly refuted. Also, the question has been, is she really an apostle? Because it says they they are outstanding among the apostles. If you open your ESV uh, translation, it's going to say that they're outstanding to the apostles. In other words, it's not including uh, Andronicus and Junia in the group of mm-hmm. apostles, but rather saying the apostles think they're outstanding. Mm-hmm. Like when they're all in a group, the apostles mm-hmm. are all like, wow, great right. people. Yeah. Those are some solid non-apostles over there. That, or do they belong <laughs> in the group of apostles? Yeah. Yes. And uh, again, there's there's study. Actually, I just read one a few, I don't know, a month or two ago, written in 2020 about this. So it's, I think, probably the most current. But boy, it's just overwhelmingly the case that now the Greeks suggest that Paul is saying that Junia and Adronicus were definitely in the apostles. And they were outstanding ones at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are going to be people that are going to try to argue the elasticity of the Greek there. Um, but they would have an awful lot of scholarship that is against them in that. And so. And if this strikes some sort of anxiety in you to imagine people disagreeing hotly and with apparent proof on both sides for one thing or another, and uh, I thought the Bible is just true and all of that, it's okay. Like all of church history is just like a tug of war back and forth between opposing ideas and sides not that that's always even negative like it's just how we figure things out like that's how we figure things out think about it this way (laughs) what would discipleship the journey of discipleship be if we simply had it all in front of us right now you Mm -hmm. know like if we simply had it perfectly laid out in front of us and there was no struggle there was no journey there was no walking there was no climbing if that were the case um the life of the disciple would be so much more bland. Mm -hmm. And what we're encountering here is part of that wrestling with reality and with ultimate truth and with big questions that makes, that adds color, you know, Mm -hmm. to the life of a disciple. Yeah. And so I happen to enjoy it. (laughs) I don't like, it's not always bad. I don't like the bad effects presented as if there's like these fighting people all proving their point. You know what? It's not that simple. Like it's, this is how we learn. It's how we evolve. It's how we figure things out. Mm -hmm. You know, revelation happens through a lot of, um, conflict. Not all conflict is bad. You know, to Mm -hmm. think of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll close the section on Junia with simply this. There's an overwhelming, in my view, a preponderance of evidence that Junia was an outstanding apostle. 
there are, you know, a handful of scholars that go against the vast majority and try to argue still that she was not a woman or that she was not in the apostles. And you still see that in a few Bible translations as well. But uh, I think their bias is showing. And I think that pretty much every reputable New Testament scholar would, would agree. And so if that's the case, what we have is a woman inhabiting and inhabiting well, arguably the highest level of leadership in the ancient church. So you got to deal with that, right? You do. You have to deal with it. <laughs> the bigger point is, um, it seems like this tiny thing, but the reason it takes so much heat and why it's like such a big deal is because it, it feels like it, um, you know, starts to like pull the, pull the cards out of the bottom of the pyramid. <laughs> like for, mm-hmm. you know, if, if that's true, then what about this and this and this? And there's just a lot of things that, um, you know, seem to fall apart logically. If this is true, then what about this? You know, like if we're saying that this is what women are supposed to be doing, you know, how does this work? So it's a, it can, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It is. Uh, we didn't talk about like the silencing passages in the new Testament at all. We did get through quite a bit of it though. I just like skimmed through the rest of the, the section, though, all of part three. And we really did end up getting to most of it. Do we want to talk about like, First Corinthians and First Timothy I mean, and women should be silent. We just said them, but I, you know, I think do, I feel do, like do people want to hear us even, talk. I feel like we've even talked about that in this series before. I think we maybe have. If not, we've talked about it. We've definitely talked okay. about it. Well, real just real quick, and since we're here, First uh, Corinthians, I think fourteen says women should be silent; she shouldn't talk. Well, in First Corinthians eleven, Paul says that women will prophesy. And so that suggests that he wasn't necessarily saying that they should be utterly silent and never speak, but perhaps instead that, you know, they shouldn't interject in the middle of the sermon or something. <laughs> um, and that's possible that that was what was going on. And similarly in First Timothy, when Paul says that women should be submissive, learn at home and quiet and all that stuff and ask their husbands. Um, there's a lot of contextual stuff going on there. There was a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis in Ephesus where Timothy was. Um, the women were the priestesses in the religious scene. Uh, you know, perhaps that was creating some problems in the, in the church where women couldn't read the text because women didn't go to school at the time, yet maybe presumed that they could get up there and start teaching. And so Paul's saying, no, you know, if you can't read, you should probably... You know, uh, like, yeah, you can be a disciple of Jesus, but, like, there's, there's a process before you're up there mm-hmm. taking the text and pulling it apart like yeah. silly putty. <laughs> Right, because Adam was created first, then Eve, <clears throat> i.e. Adam was the one who had the direct command from God not to eat of the tree. Eve had it secondhand. Similarly, men in the church have it, quote, firsthand because they can read it. Women have it secondhand because they have to be then taught it. And so they weren't easily deceived. Um, you can kind of see the logic there. And this is just one hypothesis about what might be going on here. But whatever the case, these passages... say that you know if if we're going to be if we're going to take these passages as timeless literal universal truths for the church then it seems like nobody's applying them consistently because i'm pretty sure that in most churches women still can talk Mm -hmm. so i've only personally known one person who like has been in a church his whole life where women cannot do anything like they can't speak he's never heard his wife pray out loud that kind of stuff Mm. like we're bonkers but i was like I mean, respect props <laughs> <laughs> he's a christian they're christians this Res- is just how they live yeah. and he's a super normal guy like and he's never heard his wife praise been married for like 15 years because women don't do anything they regarding should be God silent in the churches loud. yeah yeah like not even at home props for consistency man hey you know what do you have some favorite neighbors where you live I mean, real neighbors with whom you can talk and play and ask for help if you need it. I hope so. That was a lot longer than I expected. <laughs> I was like, you probably picked the longest one. Anyway. Oh, it's totally random. But yeah, like, that's like, I mean, all of it comes down to like, we're living in a world where we have to practically figure out how to live in a world where sin is present and things are not entirely as they are intended to be. And yet Jesus is always pulling us to not only 
imagine the world as it should be and will be, but to know that we can actually do things now while things are still not right yet to get ourselves there. You know, like we can do yeah. things now in in light of how things should be and will be. You don't have to just take everything as it currently is. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is always like challenging that and pulling you up to another level beyond just managing a sinful world and figuring it out until we get rescued. <laughs> You've already been rescued. So, yeah. Yeah. So here's a Bible reading tip. Don't take a couple of obscure passages and use them to create timeless and universal doctrines that silence half the church. When those verses are strange as they are difficult to understand. And there's a whole lot of verses that are clear and would suggest a challenge to the surface level interpretation of those two obscure verses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to catch all that. As Dan Kimball says, never read a Bible verse. Put it in context. Put it in context. Yeah. All right. Anything else to say, Megan? No. <laughs> I mean, if anybody has any questions, let us know. I know a lot of people listen to this podcast who don't actually um, get to be a part of our community, either because, uh, or here in Des Moines anyway, because you live far away or you're a part of other church communities, things like that. Um, a lot of you listening in may still have more questions. So just know, just if, if you're not a part of the table church community here in Des Moines, but you listen to this podcast, then you are a part of a bigger community of people from all over the place. If you have questions or disagreements or, you know, want to talk about this stuff more, you can let cool. us know. All right. So what are we doing next time? The Bible and science. Yeah. This one. Um, Let's go. We've got part four coming up. It's called Jesus time. Riding a Dinosaur. You've all seen it. It's got some pretty good images in this chapter, too. Mm -hmm. Jesus so. snuggling a little baby velociraptor. Mm -hmm. um, in place of a lamb. Yeah. Anyway, that'll yes. be interesting. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you listen next time. <laughs>